This episode of Remnant Radio is brought to you in part by our sponsors at Kairos Classrooms. Have you ever thought about learning a biblical language as a supplemental tool in your biblical studies? Well, Kairos Classrooms offers real classroom environments with with classmates and a live instructor who can help teach you biblical languages, both Greek and Hebrew. You need to check out Kairos Classrooms today. Uh, The price for a single semester is crazy affordable for anyone, so check out the links in the description and use promo code REMNANT to get 10% off Kairos Classrooms. Check out Kairos Classrooms today. Discount code R-E-M-N-A-N-T, REMNANT, to get 10% off your semester. Oh, yeah, sure. Mm Mm-hmm. Hey, everybody. Welcome to the wonderful world of Remnant Radio. This is going to be an exciting program where we talk about how continuationists view the gift of prophecy. There's two different views. We're going to be discussing those today. Stay tuned. It's going to be a lively episode. You are watching The Remnant Radio, a crowd-funded show where we interview pastors, teachers, historians, and theologians from different churches and denominations. My name is Joshua Lewis, and this is my co-host, Michael Roundtree. Together, we want to help you break outside of your theological echo chambers. If you're interested in learning about history, theology, or the gifts of the Spirit, this is the show for you. David gives always the best comments. Y'all see this? Ready for Josh in the M&M's. I, I really like that comment a lot. Uh, guys, thank you so much for tuning in to this episode of Remnant Radio. We have an exciting program for you today. But before we dive into the subject, I want to remind you that we're an entirely crowdfunded ministry. There are links in the description for both PayPal or Patreon if you want to support the channel. Uh, you can give a one-time gift there on PayPal as much or as little as you would like. Uh, or you can give there on Patreon as low as five bucks a month to get access to extra content. And some people have asked, like, is there something to the tier system? There's like a gold, silver, you know, bronze system. No, there's there's no difference. Whatever you give, you're actually getting the exact same thing back. So whatever you want to give, you can give there on Patreon. But as low as five bucks a month, you get access to extra content. Without further ado, I want to introduce you to the M&Ms. Uh, there's Michael and Michael. How are you guys Unmuting doing my microphone. Hey, how's you it going, You are a professional. <laughs> uh, good to be with you. Have an exciting episode. And man, Josh, uh, we have a lot of exciting stuff coming up. We're going... Uh, to the SEND conference, and we're going to interview some interesting folks there. I don't know if that was okay to say live on air yet. Josh, are you like frowning at me that, that I gave that away? I mean, we've we've been exposed. I mean, Bickle for <laughs> sure. That Bickle, we're going to interview Bickle. Yes, we're going to so we interview Mike Bickle. Yeah, yeah. so it's, it's going to be some interesting interviews. Uh, and got a got a, a whole uh, kind of treasure trove of interviews. We're going to begin releasing uh, filming and then releasing with uh, Sam Storms talking about Kansas City Prophets. Oh my gosh, it's going to be so good. Uh, but today we are oh, talking But you got to about... talk about next week too, where we have Candy Brown talking about prophecy, scientific, like people reviewing prophecies and testing them, scien- or prophecies, prayers, scientifically. And uh, Randy Clark comes on next week, Michael, to do the NAR stuff. Randy, dude. Just We've excited been, for Randy. Yeah, this this interview has been... In the works for like a year, lots of back and forth conversation. But uh, Randy's been a little busy, but he opened a space for us. And so we're excited to have Randy on the show. Miller, how are you doing over there in the basement? The basement of Denver, Colorado. Good, man. I feel like I've finally recovered from the jet lag and travel. Your suitcase is in the frame. I didn't notice that. It it is, yeah. (laughs) (laughs) Just own it. I've been traveling, boys. I, I have it. Put everything back into place in my my basement. <laughs> yeah. Do, so do you not have? Is your basement just like the size of you and the suitcase? Like you couldn't have. It's pretty it small, out, like three feet. 
no well, i've been in a lot there. of stuff i'd have to move it's small yeah it's quite small. <laughs> it's like a little closet uh anyway yeah i'm doing good uh i keep having people show up to the church in denver from having listened to the remnant radio which is kind of fun um but yeah nothing really to report uh oh, we saw some cool prophetic prophetic stuff this weekend didn't we michael yeah we did we did i talked about it a little bit on our monday show uh i prophesied over art monk but we saw some healings. I mean, people yeah. like healed like live on the spot when we prayed over them. That was really cool. Mm-hmm. Miller, give us a cool prophetic yeah. story. Uh, sure. Yeah, I gave, uh, this was actually, <laughs> all the power really showed up when Michael left. Um, mm. what, <laughs> what happened that night actually after you left was pretty cool. Uh, <laughs> I, I gave one couple a word uh to, to the husband more specifically, I said, Hey, I feel like you've been given a prophetic gift, but it has to do with culinary arts and you know, that you feel prompted by God to make food for people that just happens to be things that are their favorites and stuff like that. Well, it turns out that that's actually one of his favorite things to do is to make food. Uh, and his wife is also a chef. Uh, and so cool. his hobby is culinary arts and her occupation is the culinary arts. Um, and then also called another, lady out i said i feel like you have a calling for business on your life um and even entrepreneurial um but that right now you've been sort of crunching the numbers keeping the books and sort of stuck doing the accounting and i I feel like the lord is having you do the accounting because it's in preparation for what he wants you to do in business you know come come to find out right afterwards that this girl was actually majoring in accounting and that she's really been struggling and wondering if she should keep going with it and so this was actually the confirmation she needed. She had literally prayed about it uh, just prior. And everybody in the church knew her and knew she was studying accounting. So that's pretty cool. That's, pretty cool. Yeah, that's, that's awesome. Neat. That's awesome. Well, um, maybe that's a little bit of a segue into what we're talking about because we are talking about prophecy today. And, uh, you know, Miller, I'll, let me ask you this. Did you miss any prophecies this uh, this last weekend? Um, I don't remember. I, well, this is bad to say, but I tend to remember the ones that I got right because I'm always kind of blown away that God did something really cool. Uh, I don't know, Michael. You were there, did yeah. I? Was there anything that that I just you know, overtly I, missed? I don't. I don't remember you missing anything. I, I don't remember either of us missing. But um, you know, either way, we. Uh, the point is, we do miss sometimes. We do. Sure, absolutely. And. Uh, and for some people, that would be proof that we're false prophets. And that's what we really want to talk about today. And, and that's based on a passage in Deuteronomy chapter 18. I'll open it up. And, and guys, I think this is a passage worth reading uh, because, because here's how the cessationist reasons. And cessationism is just the belief that certain gifts of the Holy Spirit, like prophecy, healing tongues, uh, no longer exist. They have ceased. And so they'll come to a passage like Deuteronomy 18. I'll read read this passage, and then I'll I'll share with you the cessationist reasoning, okay? It says, The Lord your God will raise up for you a prophet like me from among you, from your brothers. It is to him you shall listen, just as you desired of the Lord uh, Lord your God at Horeb on the day of assembly. When you said, Let me not hear again the voice of the Lord my God, or see this great fire any more, lest I die. And the Lord said to me, They're right in what they have spoken. I'll raise up for them a prophet like you from among their brothers, and I will put my words in his mouth, and he shall speak them to all, uh, speak to them all that I command him. And whoever will not listen to my words, that he shall speak in my name, I myself will require it of him. 
But the prophet, and here's a key verse, the prophet who presumes to speak a word in my name that I have not commanded him to speak, or who speaks in the name of other gods, that same prophet shall die. And if you say in your heart, how may we know the word that the Lord has not spoken? When a prophet speaks in the name of the Lord, this is another key verse, if the word does not come to pass or come true, that is a word that the Lord has not spoken. The prophet has spoken it presumptuously. You need not be afraid of him. Okay, so could this be saying that uh, anyone who misses a prophecy ever is a false prophet and deserves to die? And is that what Deuteronomy chapter 18 is teaching? Uh, There are some continuationists that will say, yes, that's what it taught in Deuteronomy chapter 18, but now prophecy has fundamentally changed and prophecy can be fallible. There's a second continuationist uh, perspective that says, no, that's actually never what the passage means. But the cessationist will say, without fail, uh, well, no, I won't say this. The cessationist who wants to use this passage to argue against New Testament prophecy, uh, I have to put all of that together. Uh, The cessationist who wants to use this as an argument against continuationism is going to say Old Testament prophets, according to Deuteronomy 18, were completely infallible. New Testament prophecy is implicitly the same. New Testament prophecy, you cannot miss a prophecy. And then they will go to Ephesians 2.20, which which is the number one verse that cessationists go to. And it speaks of apostles and prophets being a foundation to the church. And they'll say, hey, this, this seems to agree, uh, this, this idea that like, okay, Old Testament prophecy was an infallible, New Testament prophecy uh, also infallible because there's a continuity between the two. And, uh, and, and since apostles and prophets were given as a foundation, we no longer need that infallible uh, revelation that came through apostles and prophets. Uh, those have ceased because they were just there for the foundation of the church. And so they'll they'll kind of talk like that. And so, but they'll but Deuteronomy eighteen is pretty much the go to Old Testament passage in Ephesians two twenty, the go to New Testament passage. Josh and Miller, did I miss anything there? No, I think you got it. Um, do we want to get into the debate itself and talk about? our various views on this right now, or do you want to? Yeah, I think we should. Um, so there is, uh, so first of all, we're going to, we'll, we'll go with uh, the two branches of continuationist thought. Okay. in resolving this and uh, resolving this question, can new Testament prophets miss? Because, uh, because the thing is the cessationist is going to say, that uh, that you're endangering biblical authority if you claim that new Te- if if you say New Testament prophets can speak with the same authority like they're speaking the exact word of God then you're endangering endangering the authority of Scripture you're endangering the sufficiency of Scripture because hey yeah, I got the Bible but now I've also got this prophet that can say things uh, whatever they want so the continuationist says no 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 okay uh, New Testament prophecy is fallible. Um, but, but there are actually like two branches of this. And so, uh, Josh, why don't you start us out on the sort of Grudem storms, uh, argument for, uh, what we might call a discontinuity between old Testament and new Testament prophecy. Yeah. Let me also just, this is also your position, isn't it? 
it, it would be the one that I definitely lean to. Um, the in this position on the discontinuity on any continuationist view would be very clear because someone kept hearing Michael say prophecy is fallible. Okay, what Michael is saying and and means to say is that prophecy that God's speech is not fallible. God doesn't lie. Right? We got into a, a little you know YouTube squabble recently, even though we we defined our terms quite well. Um, God's speech is infallible, uh, just like the scriptures are infallible, but our interpretation of those words can be misconstrued. You've had a conversation with your wife, and she means what she says, but you misunderstood her, okay? Like, that that totally happens, and we're saying as fallible human beings who are reading the scriptures, if we can err, then if we're hearing a subjective uh, word from the Lord, though God speaks here away, there away, though man may not perceive it, um, if, if it, we can't even perceive that God is speaking, then it would be easy for us to misinterpret or misapply something that God is saying. So we are not claiming that prophecy itself is fallible. When we say prophecy is fallible, what we're saying is that our interpretation and application of what God is speaking is uh, can be wrong. And we could be uh, also saying that we might not be hearing God at all and think we are. Uh, so there's two options. Yeah. We could just be dead uh, wrong. Yeah. And we could be hearing God wrongly. Yeah, and, and I don't have a problem with saying prophecy can be fallible. Uh, I would just say, maybe articulate it slightly differently than what you said, Josh. I would say the revelation is completely infallible. Sure. The interpretation and application uh, can be fallible. But the prophecy includes all of those. It includes my interpretation and the application. That's how I would parse it. I, but I think but that's neither fair. here nor there, we're really saying the same thing. That which comes directly from God is infallible. That which includes human input is fallible. And and just on a logical level, before we even get into the exegesis of it, just on a, a logical level, it, for the cessationist to be consistent, it seems that they would have to say that anyone who ever teaches anything wrong from the scriptures is a false teacher. Uh, and, and the reason is, if we take the scripture, which is clear, this is a doctrine called the perspicuity of scripture. Uh, Psalm 119.30, it says that uh, that the scriptures give understanding to the simple. Deuteronomy chapter 6, say that we're to teach our children the scripture. Even a child can understand it. doesn't mean that every passage in scripture is equally clear, but the thrust of what God is teaching us through the uh, written revelation of the Bible is clear. And so, now here's the logic of it. If if we take a, a prophet who misses a prophetic revelation, which by definition, according to Numbers 12, 6 to 8, is a mystery or a riddle, is unclear. And if we say, well, the person who misinterprets the unclear revelation is on any occasion is a false prophet, well, how much more would a person who misinterprets on any point the clear revelation of Scripture? Why wouldn't we call them by way of logic, why wouldn't we call them a false teacher? Um, but the cessationist does not do that. They say, well, you're only a false teacher if you teach people wrongly on first-tier doctrines like the Trinity and the virgin birth, etc. And uh, and I would say that's actually just a logical inconsistency. Yeah, let me, uh, let me okay. unpack this view real quick. Um, so in, in the con this continuity view, it suggests that there's a fundamental shift between the Old Testament and the New Testament's mode of prophecy. So in the Old Testament, we had certain offices, such as prophet, priest, and king. 
um, the king ruled. Uh, you know, the priests would offer up sacrifices, the prophet would direct God's people, and they had their own specific office. Now, those offices are carried into the New Testament through the session of Jesus Christ as the fulfillment of the prophet, the priest, and the king. Yet that ministry of prophet, priest, and king is still mediated to the church today through the work of Jesus. Um, uh, that being said, those ministries have fundamentally shifted as they are exercised through the body of believers. For example, we are all now royal priesthoods, right? You have this king-priest motif that takes place, but it's not just from a specific line. It's actually to all of God's people. It's not just uh, the kind of ruling that a king would do or the kind of sacrifices that a priest would do, right? Our ministry as kings and priests has fundamentally shifted in the New Testament. Uh, the argumentation would say, logically, it makes sense for the ministry of prophecy to fundamentally shift in the New Testament Additionally, um, uh, the Westminster Confession even uh, states that the ministry of Jesus as prophet, priest, and king are being administrated through the body of Christ today. So we're not we're not quabbling about that, though we might quabble about how those ministries are fleshed out. Uh, we would say that there is some kind of shift that takes place. Uh, that being said, uh, they would not say that this somehow challenges the authority of Scripture. Uh, Wayne Grudem, in his this is just a, a conclusion piece in his book on prophecy, on New Testament prophecy and Old Testament prophecy. He says there's five areas that show in 1 Corinthians that Paul didn't believe that prophecy uh, in the New Testament was this infallible foundation for all people everywhere. Uh, he would say this in 1 Corinthians 14, 29. It seems that the prophet's words could be challenged and questioned. In 1 Corinthians 14, 30, Paul seems unconcerned that some of the prophet's words uh, could be lost forever. In 1 Corinthians 14, 36, he refuses the prophets the right to make rules for worship. In 1 Corinthians 14, 37 through 38, he seems to indicate, uh, in his opinion, that no Corinthian prophet had the same kind of authority or equal authority to him and the apostles. And then 1 Corinthians 11, 5 and 1 Corinthians 14, 34 through 35, Paul allows women and children to prophesy, and yet they're not able to teach God's word. So Paul, uh, uh, Wayne Greedham says all uh, five of these are argumentations to say that New Testament prophecy is not equal to the authority of Scripture or teaching uh, the Scriptures of God. In fact, this is a different kind of authority, a different mode. Grudel would go on uh, with with uh, guys like Sam Storms and Jack Deere to say that there are uh, prophets that prophesied an infallible foundation, according to Ephesians 2.20, but those were prophets like John the Baptist, or not John the Baptist, like uh, John the Revelator. I apologize, uh, slip there. Uh, so they would say that their authority is like the authority of Jeremiah and Ezekiel. No one's judging their prophetic word, and no one's judging any prophetic words from the Apostle Paul or John or others. So they would say in the uh, uh, the discontinuity view, prophecy fundamentally shifts for all of God's people everywhere, though only the apostles had the kind of Old Testament authority that the prophets of the Old Testament had. Did, did I do a decent job there, guys? You want to add anything in there? Yeah, uh, well, one, I would say I'm pretty sure Jack does not have that view. Uh, you mentioned him as one who does, but he, he doesn't. He's on the continuity view, not the discontinuity oh, view. Oh, interesting. Um, yeah. The, the big, oh, oh, I meant to say, thing. I apologize. I meant to say that that uh, that uh, Jack Deere believed that prophecy today is not equal to scripture. I didn't mean to say that he had the continuity view. I, 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 I might have misspoke there. Said. Okay, okay. I apologize. Yeah, no worries. Um, I think the the big thing that both views agree on is the fact that the uh, prophecy as it's given in the church in the New Testament is fallible and that scripture is infallible. What, what is written in the New Testament is not is not uh, fallible. 
So th they're both in agreement on that. The, the real area of disagreement is in the area of the Old Testament. What do you do with people who are um, called prophets, uh, who prophesy versus um, the writing of scripture? And, and that's where I think the, the, that's where the area of disagreement is. The discontinuity view would say that the Old Testament prophets were infallible, period. Whereas the continuity view would say, no, Old Testament prophets were fallible, but the writing of scriptures were infallible. Does that make sense? Agreed. Yeah, Michael. absolutely. So, uh, so Miller and I would fall into camp two and Josh would fall into camp one. Uh, Josh, Josh would say Old Testament prophets were infallible. I'll give you Deuteronomy 18. You can have it. Okay. They were infallible. Stone the person who misses a prophecy. That's the way it was, but it's different now in the New Testament for all the reasons so Josh said. So I, that would be Josh's position. That I, would be I would Grudem's like to take position. a pause right there because I, I don't know that I am a hundred. I say, I would say I'd lean in that direction. I, I'm not going to be the guy who says, okay. I've got that position. You're, you're leaning. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. I, we're, we're not going to get you're into leaning. a... Uh, a, a three-way, you know, cage match on this issue because it's one of those areas yeah. where um, lots of guys have done a lot of head work on this, and I'm just kind of coming into it, going, "I want to understand it to the best of my ability." Yeah. When you've yeah, gone back so, and forth over this since we yeah. met uh, back in like 2019 when we started co-hosting, it was it was Absolutely. already kind of going. I don't know. Mm -hmm. Yeah, personally, I'm not convinced that every Old Testament prophet ever was uh, if they were a true prophet, that they were not allowed to miss a single prophecy anytime. And, uh, and part of it is because of the exegesis of Deuteronomy chapter 18. To say that Deuteronomy 18 is just, is the Moses is just kind of breaking out and talking about how prophecy should always operate, I think is divorced from the context. Uh, the, the text actually says that that there's going to arise a prophet like me. And so he references the scene at Horeb. So this is, you know, on Mount Sinai and the Lord speaks in this thunderous way and everybody's terrified, says, please don't speak to us this way. Again, it's too terrifying. And, and the Lord says, that's a good thing. I'll raise up a prophet like you, Moses. Well, at the end of Deuteronomy in chapter 34, when Moses dies, his obituary is basically like, there was never again uh, another prophet like Moses who had arisen. And what was unique about Moses? I've already referenced Numbers chapter 12, whenever uh, Moses' siblings uh, are, you know, talking smack because they think they can be prophets like Moses. God says, oh, really? Well, let me just tell you. To my everyday prophets, I speak to them in mysteries. I speak to them in dark sayings and riddles. But to Moses, I speak face to face or mouth to mouth is actually how the ESV translates it. And so he's He's saying uh, the direct communication that I have with Moses is something extremely special. And additionally, what's special about Moses is that he was a covenant mediator. It also says in Deuteronomy, quoted in uh, Hebrews, uh, that Moses was faithful in all my house. So Moses is a covenant mediator, a leader of theocratic Israel, and he is a prophet that gets direct face-to-face -face kind of communication from God, not in dark riddles and sayings. This is... Uh, an incredible prophet. And so in the New Testament, we see, for instance, in Acts chapter 3, when Peter's preaching, he references, quote-unquote, the prophet. And he says, it's Jesus. Jesus is faithful in all God's house more than Moses was. Jesus is a covenant mediator of a new and better covenant. Uh, Jesus has had face-to-face -face contact with God the Father. 
And so Jesus is the prophet like him. And this is why when Jesus comes on the scene, who do people say, do I am? Some say Elijah, some say this guy, that's some say that guy. Some say the prophet. So we have to, first of all, come to the text, understanding that the context is Moses is trying to give the people a rubric for interpreting, is this prophet, is he the one? Is he the Messiah? Is he the capital P prophet? Is he the one that you should follow? And then he gives them some requirements. And one of them is that the prophet should be accurate. But but this is in context, not just talking about any prophet ever. This is in context talking about a prophet that rises to the national stage and says, I'm the capital P prophet. I'm the one. And he says, well, if they're making that claim, their prophecies better be right. And that's actually true. If Jesus started you know, making a bunch of wrong prophecies, that would be a reason not to follow him. But we should also understand that this was not the defining reason uh, in the text for whether or not one was a false prophet. Uh, because the companion passage to Deuteronomy 18 is Deuteronomy 13. And there it says that the, that the false prophet will actually prophesy accurately. And God will allow this, it says, to test your hearts to see whether you're true to him. He'll prophesy accurately, but he'll lead you away to other gods. And that's what Deuteronomy 18 is really getting at. This is the, the true, I mean, accuracy is a test, but the greatest test is, are they leading you to God or are they leading you away from God? And that's when the, the language of verse 20 and 22, it'll, it'll use the word presumptuously. Craig Keener says this can be, interpre- this can be translated rebelliously. And so the point of the passage is, uh, God is going to raise up a prophet like Moses, uh, and and the way you can know this prophet is that he will prophesy accurately, and if anyone rises to the national stage and, and claims that they're this sort of prophet like Moses, pay attention to the accuracy of their prophecies, but especially pay attention to, are they leading you to Yahweh, or are they leading you against him? I don't think that we can take this and apply it to the hundred prophets that Obadiah hid in a cave in 1 Kings 18.4. Are we really going to say that those hundred prophets had uh, had a precision and accuracy that was scripture level? Are we really going to say that the company of prophets that Samuel and Elijah and Elisha oversaw, this school of the prophets, that every prophecy they ever prophesied was Bible level accurate? And are we? And I think one reason to say that that's not the case is First Samuel three nineteen uh, says that Samuel that of Samuel that none of his words fell to the ground. Why would the Bible say this if it wasn't remarkable? If every single prophet who ever prophesied was a hundred percent accurate, if they were a true prophet, why would you say that none of Samuel's words fell to the ground? If that's just true of everybody, that's not it would remarkable. Be, uh, it would be uh, redundant. That's what you're saying. It would be redundant, Let, is what I'm saying. Can I ask All right. you? No, like a I've question? said a lot, so you guys chime in. There's there's a question in the chat feed that might be worth looking at. Um, just again, uh, this is from Maria Carl. So she said, "But why are the standards different from Old Testament to New Testament?" I think that's what we're trying to show. Is is Michael and I are on the position that there the standard hasn't changed. That we actually think there's continuity with prophecy in the Old Testament and prophecy in the New Testament. We don't think prophecy coming from the mouth of a prophet. Uh, as it's spoken, is infallible. We think the writings of Scripture are infallible, both old and new. Um, And then, whereas Josh would take the discontinuity or lean in that direction. 
Yeah. Um, go ahead, Josh. Yeah, let me ask this question, though, because you made the statement that Deuteronomy 18 points us to national stage prophets that get crazy accurate. Now, I'm going to throw a name out there. We don't have to quibble on the name necessarily, but there was a guy once upon a time named Paul King who was wicked accurate with his prophetic words from every Paul account I've ever heard. Paul King. Paul You're King. You're talking Paul Kane? Yeah, Paul Kane. Yeah. So this dude was yeah. wicked accurate with his prophetic words. Now, there are obviously some glaring moral failures that took place that we'll discuss in our Kansas City Prophet series. Um, but national level prophet gave accurate words regularly. Can we say that he is prophesying in accordance and equal with scripture? And if the standards of Deuteronomy 18 are the same today, why aren't there national level prophets who can speak as authoritatively as scripture themselves? Well, I think I think there's a misunderstanding there. When Michael's saying national level prophet, he's not talking about just somebody who rises to national popularity or influence. He's talking about a kind of prophet that would have been a new covenant carrier, like a specific eschatological figure. That's what he's specifically mentioning. Um, and, and we That's know what the that, that Deuteronomy is. 18, yeah, we know that Deuteronomy 18 passage absolutely gotcha. was applied to an eschatological figure because otherwise they would have never asked John the Baptist, are you the, the prophet? prophet? Agreed. And then the, the other thing about that is in Deuteronomy 34, he even goes on to elaborate how the, a prop, what a prophet would look like. That's like Moses. And he says, since that time, no prophet has arisen like Moses. And then he specifies whom the Lord knew face to face. And it's in the context of appointing the next leader of Israel. So a prophet who's going to be a leader of that nation, um, that's the context of Deuteronomy 34. And yet he's saying that prophet who's now going to lead Israel is not like Moses. So, so yeah. there's even more clarity when he's, he's uh, in, in chapter 34 there. Yeah. And I, I would say this, Josh, and I don't know if this touches on kind of the fringe of what you're getting at. I, I would say that given Deuteronomy 18 and a continuity view, I, I would say, you know what? if a prophet rises to the national stage and they start prophesying all kinds of stuff and they're leading people away from Yahweh or they're missing their prophecies Stoneham. when they get to the national stage, I think of the Trump prophets. Sure. I think that, I mean, in the old Testament it was stoning, but in the new Testament, if not excommunication, very strong discipline. I mean, it kind of depends on whether they're repentant or not. But, but I think what this does is it actually speaks into the way I think, prophecy should function in the church today is that just like in the Old Testament, you had schools of the prophets where I don't think that it was necessarily everything was Bible level prophecy. Okay. But then somebody could rise to prominence like a Samuel who none of his words fell to the ground or an Isaiah or a Jeremiah. I think that the higher the level you get, the greater the accountability. And I think the same thing should be true in the way we practice it in the New Testament that we should have uh, that Every church should be, in a sense, a school of the prophets. So, so we should be training and equipping and developing and and testing prophetic words. And uh, before we just put somebody out on YouTube as like, here's the national prophet, and they're going to share this word with, you know, about 2023 and what's going to happen. Uh, I just want to know, are they vetted? <laughs> you know, and, yeah. and if they're not, we shouldn't put them up. And uh, and if they fail, then we should actually not not take that lightly. We shouldn't be like, oh, well, they failed and sometimes we can miss it. When you're at that level, I, I think it actually calls for repentance. So Michael, uh, that, you're hitting on something say. that's important when it comes to accountability for uh, national level prophets versus accountability for some of the people that might have been trained under the prophets in the school of the prophets. Um, you see this actually get played out. I mean, 
here's how the Lord is going to hold certain prophets accountable. Hanamel, not sorry, not Hanamel, uh, Hezekiah, the Lord has not sent you. This is a prophet appointed to the nation of Israel. And he says, the Lord has not sent you. You've caused these people to trust in a lie. And so on some level, this prophet was actually leading an entire nation astray. And so God actually held this prophet accountable and killed him. Mm. And I think the same thing would be true today. If there's a prophet that rises to a national stage and is actually causing people to turn away from God or to to um, trust in a lie, then God will take that person out. I think that's quite possible. So, the, But I think that's also true with national level teachers, people who Let have me, a world platform and they're actually causing people to trust in a lie. I want to jump on the, on the tail end of that because I think that you're, you're – you're onto something that I think is interesting because you know Michael said almost verbatim what Darren said here. He says, "I think misspeaking for God should be taken seriously." And and Michael said those almost exact words when he says, "When we miss prophecies, we should take it seriously." But I want to compare like a new believer who's sharing their faith with um, someone in their family. Right? They're sharing their faith for the first time and they're just stumbling through it. We don't hold that person to the same level of accountability that we would a John MacArthur or a Michael Roundtree who gets up on the Lord's Day and preaches the scriptures, right? We expect Mm -hmm. an individual who shares the gospel for the first time to, to to, to fumble through it. And the same thing I would say with prophecy, instead of, you know, so we have sharing and teaching, right? We kind of like, we kind of separate those in our mind a little bit. Okay, new believers sharing their faith, but it's not really the same as teaching, and then with prophecy and then like a leading, right? We're still going to call it the gift of prophecy in the same way that the person sharing their faith is really teaching about Jesus, but he's doing it in a way that that requires less, um, le- it has less authority, certainly, but it has less consequences as well. And the person who gets up and prophesies, you know, and they, they stand next to a person and says, hey man, I feel like the Lord's leading me to say that, you know, on Sunday I was in worship and there was a lady sitting next to me. And I just said, hey, do you have a chronic illness? As I was praying, didn't want to get a prophetic word, didn't ask for one. But when I looked over at you, I thought that you had a chronic illness. And she goes, I have an autoimmune disorder. I was like, let's pray for it. So we prayed and that was it, right? Now, if I had gotten that wrong, I don't think that that's the kind of like prophecy we're talking about. What we're talking about is like you, you mentioned Trump prophecies or someone who gets up on the Lord's day and says, thus says the Lord in three days, there'll be a nuclear holocaust or whatever. And it doesn't happen. We should handle that person the same way we should handle a person who misteaches on the Lord's Day. The same measure of correction should take place. Do we all agree on that? Absolutely. Yeah, absolutely. Okay. Yeah. I think I think that yeah. helps frame the discussion in, in a way that, that we're not treating prophecy as this loose thing that everyone can just kind of flip around however they want. We're treating it in the same way we would well, we sharing your Context things. matters. Yes. Yeah. You know, if if your if your influence is over, you know the the few people that you brought to church that day as a brand new believer, and you're prophesying to them and, and sort of testing out your prophetic gifting, you're the, the standard is totally different. We're not going to expect you to do it with perfect accuracy. If we're going to put you in front of the church to give a prophetic word, we have a higher standard for that. In the same way with teaching. So I, I think the maturity of gift often determines the platform that gift should be given. Well, right. So, so that's the, that's the context of Deuteronomy 18. We're talking about somebody who's elevated and leading all of Israel astray in the context of the prophet like me talking messianic conversation. That's, that's huge. That's a huge deal. And, and yeah, that person would have been killed in the old Testament. Um, 
and I think we have to ask, what would be the equivalent today of that in the in the New Testament church? And I and I think I think the Trump prophecies do. Um, they're maybe not quite to that level. These people aren't claiming to be a mess- messianic figure, uh, but they are leading thousands, if not millions, I would say of people. Similar to Hezekiah. Yeah, yeah. So on that on that national stage, but. Um, I want to come back to why Miller and I are of the discontinuity, or, or sorry, of the continuity view that the way Old, Old Testament prophecy operated is the same as the New Testament. Now, the, the one major difference is the what we call the democratization of prophecy. Acts chapter two: I'll pour out my spirit on all flesh. That's all believers, uh, and and they will prophesy. Your young men, your old men, your men servants, your maid servants, even. Uh, and your sons and daughters, everybody going to prophesy, right? That's Acts chapter 2. Uh, and so the coming of the Spirit and the giving of prophecy uh, as, a, as a gift to the church, these, these are hand in hand, and this is in fulfillment of Moses' longing in Numbers chapter 11, would that all the Lord's people were prophets. All of us can hear the voice of the Lord. This is a, a, a New Testament, New Covenant gift. Now, someone who's prophetically gifted will do so proficiently, and they'll do so for other people. Uh, but uh, So I do believe, I don't think this continuity-discontinuity conversation is a, necessarily a perfect label, because there is at least that discontinuity, uh, that prophecy is more widespread. Where, uh, where I would say, though, uh, you know, Josh, you would say there is a, a, an additional, or at least you lean toward, there's an additional discontinuity when it comes to the issue of authority of prophecy. And Michael and I would say, we think there is actually a continuity with the authority of prophecy, because we don't think that in the Old Testament, it was necessarily infallible every single time. And so I'd like to walk through uh, maybe a few examples, and Miller, maybe you could help me with this. Um, I'll, I'll start with Nathan. But a few examples from the Old Testament where it seems like a prophet actually missed a prophecy. And there are no, uh, there, there's no like taking him out back and stoning him or anything like that. It seems to just be like, okay, well, sometimes prophets miss, uh, even true prophets of the Lord. Uh, one example is Nathan. And this comes in 2 Samuel chapter 7. Uh, David becomes king, he wants to build a house for the Lord. And so he calls in Nathan, Nathan, who is the royal prophet. And the way it operated back then is you had uh, you had a king, and he would have his court prophets, the guys that he would consult and say, is it the will of the Lord that I go into battle? Is it the will of the Lord that I start this new project? Is it the will of the Lord? And they call in the prophets, and the prophets would uh, stand before the Lord and pray and seek, and they would come and they would give their answer. So David wants to build a temple. And so he calls in Nathan, his court prophet whose very express purpose is to deliver prophetic messages to the king about what is the will of the Lord. And so David asks him, what is the will of the Lord? I want to build this house. And Nathan says in 2 Samuel 7, build the house, quote, the Lord is with you. The Lord is with you. And so then Nathan has a dream. The Lord appears to him and he gets rebuked by the Lord. He doesn't get stoned by the community. He does get rebuked by the Lord and says, actually, it's going to be for Solomon, his son, and this incredible promise arises from that in 2 Samuel 7. So Nathan goes back with egg on his face and says, eh, I was actually not supposed to build a house. Okay, so 
Now, some people are going to say, well, it wasn't a prophecy because he didn't say, thus says the Lord. That's not the only way people prophesy. Given the context that this was a court prophet called upon to give the Lord's counsel, and then he uses Yahweh's name and says, the Lord is with you, I'm going to go ahead and call that a prophecy. And it was a missed prophecy. And so that's one reason why I would believe that there is a continuity. The prophecy was infallible in the Old Testament, just as it is infallible in the New Testament. Miller, you want to give us another example? Yeah, so uh, we've got the one from Jeremiah. And I'll be, I know that there was two different ones in Jeremiah where it seems like Jeremiah missed it. One of them was because the, the context actually explains why that changed. Is that right, Michael? Because you, you took that out of our the notes I sent you, right? <laughs> yeah, I did. There, there's a... Uh, okay. Yeah, the, the, there was another example that you gave, but I, I didn't think it was the best example. I mean, I love you, but yeah, you no, forced no, me fine. to say that on air. No, no, I'm happy. Uh, that's exactly why I, I always want my stuff critiqued. So this one, though, was an example I gave you that actually that you couldn't find any fault with. Um, and this is out of Jeremiah chapter 22. So we've got uh, Jehoiakim is the, the person being prophesied to, um, and it's being prophesied by Jeremiah. Now, what we're told is that uh, no one would mourn his loss, that his corpse would be dragged around and thrown outside the gates of Jerusalem, left unburied to decompose in the sun. I mean, this is everything is uh, reeks of signs of judgment on this king. Um, not only this, but later on in chapter 36, we're prophesied that none of his descendants would sit on the throne. And then as it turned out, uh, Jehoiakim received a proper burial and his son succeeded him as king. And we're not giving any reason for why that changed. So as far as we know, Jeremiah missed it. And, and here's the weird thing. The fact that there is no explanation tells me that they might have been quite comfortable with prophets getting it wrong. The very fact that it's recorded in Jeremiah uh, should imply that on some level, that they were comfortable with the idea that even Jeremiah could get it wrong. Can I, can I give a thought there? Yeah, go for I it. Mean, I mean, uh, push in back, Jer- yeah. yeah, in Jeremiah 18, he seems to suggest if a nation does evil, right? If a prophetic word is given out and then the nation does evil, then God will, like uh, if the prophetic word is of blessing and the nation does evil, he will relent of his blessing and bring a curse. And then that same kind of thing is given for those who God says, hey, I'm going to go to destroy you. And then uh, the, the, the nation repents and then he doesn't destroy them. We see this kind of sussed out in the prophet Jonah, who the scripture clearly suggests this as a prophet, days, Nineveh yeah, will be overthrown. you will yeah. be destroyed, Nineveh. And then Nineveh repents. No one assumes that Jonah is a false prophet. They just assume that the prophetic word was contingent. When I hear that word yeah. later in Jeremiah, already knowing in Jeremiah 18 that he has explained what a contingent prophecy is, if the man heard this word that no one's going to mourn your death, and then he actually repented unto the Lord, it would make logical sense that the readers would know the con- what the contingent clause would be. The the problem is is it's not mentioned explicitly. So yeah, you, you've got this. There there may have been something that happened yeah. that the scriptures don't record. Uh, something along the the lines of Jehoiakim actually repenting from his sin and then the Lord relenting on the judgment that He was going to give Jehoiakim. But the problem is this isn't the only example we have. Um, yeah, and, and Miller, and I would Nathan also in particular is it. Yeah, and I would also follow it up. And, and Josh, that's a great point. And uh, because that was actually why I didn't include Miller's other example, uh, because I found what could be perceived as a repentance. And so I didn't want to include it. We, wanted, well, well, we only want to re- include it. Rebellion the, would have been the other one. Right, right, right. But um, 
but here I, I wanted to just so here's what we learn about Jehoiakim in Second uh, Kings 23. Jehoiakim was 25 years old when he began to reign. He reigned 11 years in Jerusalem. His mother's name was uh, Zeb Zebida, the daughter of Pediah of Ruma, and he did what was evil in the sight of the Lord, according to all that his father had done. So I would say there there's no evidence that he repented, and yet it's in that very same chapter in verse 6 that says he slept with his fathers, and Jehoiakim, his son, reigned in his place. So in the very same chapter that it says that he did evil in the sight of the Lord, it says he did have a son to reign. He was buried in peace, as was the custom of kings, which is actually the opposite of what Jeremiah said would happen. So... That's why I think it's a, uh, I mean, for somebody who holds to a discontinuity view, I just think that's a scripture that you've got to wrestle with. I'm not saying I'm right on that. I, I think I'm right. It looks right. But uh, it appears to me to be a prophecy that's missed. And and also, I want to say this in response to somebody in our chat, Darren, uh, Darren P. Plies, who is awesomely faithful uh, as a remnant viewer. And um, But Darren uh, keeps saying like, Hey, you know, if you're going to use Nathan or Jeremiah as an example of like, it's okay to miss prophecy, uh, you, you're completely missing it. I don't think any of us are saying like, hey, like I, we're not trying to make an apol be apologists for go out and just miss prophecy all the time. And that's Any awesome. more than we are missing. What we are saying. Yeah. What we we're are saying, saying is serious. Yeah. What we are saying is that if you miss a prophecy, it doesn't make you a false prophet. In fact, if you do a search on a false prophet in the scripture, you will find that it only speaks of religious, unbelieving hypocrites who try to lead God's people astray. That's what a false prophet is, not somebody who, lead, not somebody who misses a single prophecy. And I prefer to use language the, the same way that the scripture does. Uh, so that, that's really the point that we're making. Uh, Miller, do you want to unpack Ezekiel or Josh, or do you want me to do it? Uh, you go for it. Go for it. I'm not as I'll familiar with this one. But <laughs> okay, I'm cool. Curious about the uh, sure one that you didn't include that I gave you was the what about Elijah? Yeah, uh, <laughs> cool. I mean, you can bring it up. I didn't love the example either because I thought it could be perceived differently. All right, I'd love to hear that though. But, All the so, same. Go so, ahead. Use so, so Michael's like, like I'm going to give. I'm going to give It'll my. My, my presentation on this position and Michael's like, I'm going to intentionally hide these verses that don't look like they, they support. No, no, I, I, no, <laughs> no. Well, it's not that they don't I, look, I still like, hear your they don't look like they're against it either. They don't right, look like right, they're right, against right. it either. Uh, they, they simply, I don't think support my position, they, but they don't support the other either. So, uh, yeah, but it it, it's about, uh, Miller. I kind of forgot what it was. Go ahead and bring it up. Miller. This is about uh, the king of Mo uh, the king of Israel. So he's wondering if going against the Moabites, if he'd win in battle, he inquires of Elijah. Elijah says, "Hey, the the, the Lord's going to give these people into your hand." And then the king of Moab sacrifices his son on the altar of his foreign god. It says a great wrath came against Israel, and they fled. So what Elijah said was that they would be victorious, but what actually happens is Israel flees. Uh, that one, I'm I'm curious to know your pushback on why that's not a good yeah. example. Well, of, of a uh, in the in between, it. I I, th I mean that last part when wrath comes on Israel, it sounds like uh, you might be right. It's possible that he did miss the prophecy, but before that, it does have them routing the, the uh, Moabites just like it was said. So it it seems to be uh, a little more mixed than that. And so when I'm trying to make a case, I'll just simply uh, I'm not going to 
quote something that I think could be taken either way. Yeah, I so think it's clear if that if you the, read the in-between context. The Nathan passage is a strong passage. Go ahead, Josh. The fact that Samuel, none of his words fell to the ground is a strong passage. Those are both you know, the the Samuel passage says, okay, well, it would be redundant to say that a prophet's words never fell to the ground if he's a true prophet. The Deuteronomy 18 says all the prophets' words would never fall to the ground. Therefore, maybe I'm misreading Deuteronomy 18. Maybe I've created a systematic or a kind of a, a systematized theology that I'm trying to read into the text because it would be redundant to say that. Um, and then you go to Nathan and you go, it does appear that Nathan missed it, right? And then we have passages that do appear like the same passages we have in 1 Corinthians 14, that God speaks here away, there away, though man may not perceive it. That's in Job. But we also see that we prophesy through mirror darkly, right? We, we prophesy in part, we know in part. So it does seem as if that there is a bit of continuity with the idea that just because God is speaking doesn't mean it's explicitly clear. And if it's not explicitly clear, there's room for misinterpretation. And I think that is the consistent flow of Paul. And it seems, again, it seems seems to be some of these passages in the Old Testament would, would fall into that line. I'm not as convinced that Jeremiah is. I'm, I don't, with Jeremiah 18 as the precursor to that text, I go, maybe the audience knew he had given this prophetic word, but the audience knew of a repentance, and that's why it wasn't written down, because it was common knowledge in that day. Um, but I don't know. Like, it would be, it would be worth yeah, doing a little why, bit more research Why would the me. summary of his... But if that's the case, why would the summary of his life at the very end of his life, which is in the same chapter, uh, why would it say that he did evil in the sight of the Lord? I think uh, to omit a repentance there would be, uh, I mean, I think misleading. I mean, it's certainly an argument from silence and, and unlikely. It certainly is. Um, what about the Ezekiel passage that we haven't talked about? Yeah. So here, here's the Ezekiel passage. And honestly, I think this is a really strong case. Uh, Ezekiel 26 to 28 is a really lengthy prophecy against the city of Tyre. And it talks about how Nebuchadnezzar is going to come in and he's going to wreck shop. And, and, uh, twice, it, it, at least twice that I, uh, remember, and it might be more, it's at least twice. It says that, uh, Nebuchadnezzar will plunder Tyre and, uh, when it takes it out and that plunder was going to be kind of like the reward to Nebuchadnezzar because Nebuchadnezzar was basically doing the Lord's will in this. Like he was the Lord's tool in judging Tyre. And so, uh, and so it's like the Lord's like, I'm going to give you some plunder for this. And so at least twice and, uh, Ezekiel 26, I want to say, I, I have it written down verse five and, um, I don't want to take the time to anyway, verse five and a few verses later. Uh, he'll, you'll get the plunder, you'll get the plunder. Well, just a few chapters later. Now this goes on 26, 27, and 28. Then in chapter 29, verses 17 through 20, it directly says that Nebuchadnezzar didn't, he did defeat them just as it was prophesied, but he didn't get any plunder. And it was a little bit harder fought of a battle than chapters 26 through 28 seemed to suggest. And in fact, I, uh, I seem to recall that Tyre wasn't completely annihilated um, as it was prophesied, but it, it kind of went on. It, that, that's true. Went on for uh, a few hundred years until Alexander actually destroyed it. Um, so th this is an example. So there was no plunder. The devastation was not nearly as complete. And so God says in chapter 29, okay, okay, I'll give you the plunder from Egypt since you didn't get it from these guys. So go, go get the Egyptians. And so it's a strange Old Testament story, I admit, but to have three chapters of a prophecy that in the very next chapter, it directly says it didn't happen that way, I think is a strong case that uh, that the prophecy didn't happen. 
And nobody stoned it, Ezekiel anything, for that. The, the, the fact that these things are so obscure in the Old Testament, it just it seems to imply that they would have felt plenty comfortable with the fact that it didn't go exactly as it was prophesied. Um, that there's some level of ambiguity around prophecy in a general sense, and that the standard for a false prophet was not whether the words came to pass or not, but rather who they're leading you to worship, whether that's Yahweh or away from Yahweh. Um, this I think is at a the end question of the day, that I have about Ezekiel that's really concerning to me. Ezekiel says things in that chapter, such as, and the Lord said unto me, and the Lord said this, and the Lord said that, right? Are you asking me? Yeah. Uh, yeah, I think he does. So, so here's my question. Are the scriptures in error? Because he wrote, God said it. He obviously... He is, a, he is not just well, prophesying, he's writing scripture. He's saying, God said this. Well, unless the scriptures intentionally are recording a prophecy that didn't come to pass. So the scriptures could still be inerrant and infallible in that sense. Right, and but he's writing He's writing it saying, hey guys, I want to tell you a story. God spoke to me, and he's writing scripture, and he's saying God spoke to me. He didn't say, hey guys, this one time I thought God was speaking to me. He's claiming that God spoke to him. So he's writing this in scripture and then therefore the scriptures are wrong because it didn't come to pass. So you only have two options. Either God really spoke it and wasn't able to bring it about or God didn't speak it and the scriptures are in error in that Ezekiel was incorrect. And that's, that's a kind of, that's uncomfortable, right? That's a slip none of us want to go down. That's a slip none of us want to go down. So I I don't know how we reconcile that. I mean, what do you, what do you do with it, Josh? I don't. What do you do with the fact that his prophecy didn't, I have because I, I mean my, it's a problem. It's a problem for every position, right? Right. Because his prophecy doesn't happen. It doesn't come to pass. So unless so you my, don't believe in the inerrancy of scripture, my assumption is that the scriptures are inerrant, and my reading is incorrect. So when I come to yeah, a text like that, here. when I come to a text like that, I go, uh, "I'm assuming I'm reading this wrong because I realize so, my fallibility." But I have a hard time reconciling out. those two things. Check out BJ's comment. Uh, he said uh, something about what Mike Winger said in, con- uh, in commenting on this very passage. Um, so when he's talking about the nations, he's changing from talking about Nebi, Nebuchadnezzar, to talking about other nations. Alexander the Great did take it out. What do you think about that as an explanation? So it's kind of like a, like in Isaiah, where, where um, in Isaiah chapter 9, he brings a child with him to the king. And in Isaiah chapter 9, he goes, uh, this child, oh, let me go read it. Uh, he gives a, a prophetic word that's to the king. I think it's Ahab. Ah, it could be Ahab. Um, Isaiah 9. He gives this word to Isaiah. And in the word, he gives a messianic prophetic word about the king that is to come. Um, am I in Isaiah 9? Yeah, for us, a child is born, right? So, um, but he gives this word. Um, he gives the... Um, this child metaphor for us a child is born to us the son is given the government should be upon his shoulders and his name will be called wonderful counselor mighty god everlasting father prince of peace of his increase and of his government there will be no end and on the throne of david over this kingdom to be established uh, it and uphold it in justice and righteousness uh, from this time forth and forevermore so this is the sign that's going to be given to this king is that this child is going to be born and the government's going to be on his shoulders well, that doesn't happen for a couple hundred more years uh, but he does give a prophetic word that when this child, before this child is able to eat uh, curds, 
he's speaking of his son, who's got this ridiculously long name, like the longest name in the it's a Shurjashab or something ridiculous. So part of the word is clearly to the king that's in front of him. And the other part of the word is going to be fulfilled in Jesus. And this happens in prophecy For where sure. part of it happens now and the other part happens later. So again, my assumption is that in Ezekiel, I'm reading the text wrong, that it means partial fulfillment now, partial fulfillment later, rather than saying, Ezekiel said, thus saith the Lord in Holy Scripture, therefore Ezekiel, you know, um, Ezekiel got his prophetic word wrong. Uh, those are two hard things to reconcile. Yeah, I hear you. I, I think for me, it just falls into the same category as 2 Samuel 7. We just have the benefit of of actually, you know, seeing the rebuke from the Lord afterward. But when Samuel's or when uh, Nathan says the Lord is with you and the Lord isn't actually with him, yes, it is recorded in Holy Scripture, but that little portion he did miss. And so I, I would view these other ones, uh, and specifically Ezekiel, is probably like that. But I, I, I don't want to get lost in the weeds on this. I, I think what I want to what I want to point out is Nathan is a I, what I would say an ironclad example of a of a prophet who misses in the Old Testament. Uh, I think Jeremiah and Ezekiel seem to have missed in the Old Testament, and it is recorded. They said, "Thus says the Lord," and it appears they were inaccurate. Uh, some will argue that the same happens with Agabus in the New Testament. Thus says the Holy Spirit, and that he's inaccurate, and it falls on both sides. People go both ways. He was accurate. He wasn't accurate. Uh, but Acts twenty one four, there was definitely a miss there. Went through the Spirit. They said not to go to Jerusalem. So I would say yes, these things are recorded in Scripture. I I would say that um, that that these are. Ex but our, our big picture where we're going with is uh, if you don't buy the Jeremiah Ezekiel argument. That's fine. By the by, the Nathan argument, and uh, and the real point that we're making is, I don't see the case that Old Testament prophecy every single time for every single prophet who ever prophesied, if they were true prophet, that they always were Bible level accuracy. I don't see the evidence for that, and I see some evidence against it. And, and I think primarily yeah, you can make the no argument. There's no explicit verse. Go ahead. As I say, there's no explicit verse to say that Old Testament prophets and the giving of a prophecy were infallible. Um, and since we do have some, oh, none of his words fell to the ground. It makes no sense to mention that if it was the same with all prophets. There's a reason why he's specifying and singling Samuel out. Um, yeah, otherwise, it's it really is. There's no. There's no benefit to having that. I think this all hinges on there. Deuteronomy 18 and your interpretation of Deuteronomy 18 because um, my my inclination, I, I agree with you in Deuteronomy 18 that it's talking about a specific kind of prophet and it's not talking about these infallible prophets. But I think prophets. by reading that every prophet that follows Moses is going to have this infallible authority, if that is the, the kind of reading you take, um, then it makes sense why you would want to interpose that on every single passage um, uh, 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 or every, every single passage looking for that in every text, right? Um, so I think so if you're you have... coming over to our side. No, not necessarily. Come on over. I still, I still right think, over here. I still think he, he's just can... hinging it on Deuteronomy 18. I do think the Deuteronomy, the other, the other passages aren't as, as compelling, I think, necessarily. I think Deuteronomy 18 needs to be properly understood. I think that even Sam... And I don't want to speak for Sam, but I do think that Sam actually agrees that Deuteronomy 18 is talking about a prophet like Jesus, um, that he's saying that this is a category of a certain kind of prophet, and he still has a discontinuity view. 
And I think that you can have that and say that there was prophecy in the Old Testament, the prophets, um, and maybe you can say the capital P prophets of the Old Testament um, did have an authority like the capital A apostles of the New Testament um, in that they are writing scripture. But there are there does seem to be another class of prophets that do seem to miss that aren't writing scripture. And I don't know. Okay. So how does yeah, he, and how that, does might, he make sense that might even Luke be a third writing uh, Josh, how does he make sense of Luke? Um, not an apostle, and yet he's writing scripture. And so we we take the, the 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 stance not that the apostles' job exclusively was to write scripture, and if you weren't an apostle, you couldn't write scripture. Even cessationists acknowledge that non-apostles wrote scripture. Right? Mark wasn't an apostle. Luke wasn't right. an apostle. We don't know who Hebrews was written by, but these are all received by the community as God's word. Um, but it does seem as if that the the prophet of the Old Testament had a binding authority, like the like Deborah. She had authority over Israel. She wasn't just giving prophetic words that you could kind of, oh, maybe the guy in, in Kings chapter 20 who gets eaten by a lion because he disobeys a prophetic word. Well, maybe I was wrong. and gets mauled by a lion. Like, it seems like there was a serious authority on that word, on that revelation. Same with Hezekiah as well. Yeah, so, so I, I think that you can look at these stories and go, well, there seemed to be a very swift judgment on some of these prophets that were holding in these offices, and yet we have a democratization that's uniquely different in the New Testament, um, where all people are given this gift, but it's judged and weighed in the context of a local community. There's not one guy at the top directing the entire nation, uh, like a Deborah, like a a, a a Jeremiah. They should have been listening to him, but they didn't. You know, um, so, I think there are these national level prophets that have a different authority in the Old Testament. There's a, uh, a question in the chat that's worth answering by FL Guy, but it says, but if they're not infallible, how can we see them as reliable? How can we know that any prophecy really is really accurate or from God? Well, that question can also be applied to any person who's a prophet in general because they have sin. How can they be problem with apostles who also have sin writing scriptures? Um, or, mean, or any uh, teacher. Got, uh, Sons of Thunder wanting to call down fire. And Jesus tells them, this is not the spirit of God. This is a spirit of murder that you're displaying wanting to kill Samaritans. So th that question can go further. Um, and yeah, let, day, I think when it comes to the writing of scriptures, this is what the Lord is sovereignly protected. Yeah, and when we look at this question, okay, but if it's not infallible... How can we uh, how can we see them as reliable? Ask yourself the question: If teaching isn't infallible, how can you rely upon it? Right by discerning. Like, that's the whole point. Like that's why prophecy is to be discerned is because the assumption is not all of them are infallible. Um, why good. are we testing these things? Why are we discerning things? Why are the other prophets weighing what is being said? Why does Paul say that their authority isn't equal as his? Right? Uh, why are these kinds of claims being made all throughout First Corinthians fourteen? Again, I would. I would encourage people to go revisit the conclusion chapter uh, in, in uh, Dr. Wayne Grudem's you know, passage where he gives five reasons why New Testament prophecy isn't as authoritative as Scripture itself. Because at the end of the day, where Michael and Michael and I agree, is that any prophecy today that is given is not of the same authority and class as Scripture. We are not we're not able to go around prophesying and telling people what to do, thus saith the Lord, and they have to obey us as if they were obeying the apostolic witness. Um, we don't believe that that is the case, um, and we believe that prophetic words cannot be from God, and they can be from God, and we understood them incorrectly. Um, those are 
the categories we all agree on. We, we agree that if someone gets up and declares that thus saith the Lord and doesn't repent of a prophecy that didn't come to pass, that it's false and they should repent of that. Um, and I'm not calling them a false prophet, but I am saying that their prophetic word is false. And if they don't repent of it, I think you can't. And this is where we might disagree. But I think you can call a person a false prophet if they said Trump will be president in 2020 and he wasn't and they won't repent of it. I think you can mark him. I, I'm totally comfortable with that. Uh, yeah, I mean, I, I'd be open to that. I, yeah, I'd be open to that. Okay, I think I lost footage. Right, am I on? Okay. Yeah, yeah, you're good. Hey, um, yeah, you're good. I want to come to. I want to come to one of the objections. I mean, the major cessationist objection, which is Ephesians two twenty, says that prophecy is infallible. Uh, you know, we, you know, coming back to that, that all prophecy is infallible, and that's part of why it was foundational in Ephesians two twenty. Uh, you know, we didn't have the infallible word of God yet. The scripture, uh, the canon was not completed. And so we have, a, you know, that's why the apostles and prophets were a foundation. So here, here is the verse. This is the go-to verse for cessationists uh, that basically says we're a temple where the household of God built on the foundation of the apostles and prophets, Christ Jesus himself being the cornerstone. So it's kind of like, hey, well, apostles and prophets, they gave us the foundation way back in the day, but we don't need that. And the foundation's already built. And, uh, and they would say that that foundation was prophecies given by these people. I'm going to make the case that Paul's not talking about every prophecy ever given. Are we going to say like the disciples of Tyre and uh, Acts 21, like that their prophecies were infallible? Are we going to say that uh, everybody who prophesied in Corinth was uh, was giving infallible prophecies like scripture, word of God level? Are we going to say that, I mean, there are loads of prophets, the four daughters of Philip, that they gave infallible prophecies, uh, the level of scripture, and that all of those prophecies together were the foundation of the church? What about just personal prophecies to individuals? They were foundational for the church. It's a strange argument, okay? And it doesn't fit the context because he's going to go on in verse 5, chapter 3, verse 5. It's not necessary either. For context, yeah. But verse, I'll start in verse 4. When you read this, you can perceive my insight of the mystery of Christ, which was not made known to the sons of men and other generations, as it has now been revealed to his holy apostles and prophets by the Spirit, this mystery is that the Gentiles are fellow heirs, members of the same body, and partakers of the promise in Christ Jesus through the gospel. So he tells us what the uh, so he tells us what their revelation was. It wasn't any prophecy ever given by anyone ever in the New Testament. No, it was the specific revelation of Gentile inclusion in the church. Because according to Israelites, they just thought, yeah, a bunch of Gentiles are going to come, but they're going to uh, are going to come into the faith, but they're going to have to convert to Judaism. That was their thought. And then the apostles and the prophets came and they said, no, there's a whole new man. That's the metaphor in Ephesians 2. Uh, a whole new race, a third race that's neither Jew nor Gentile, but it is the church. Deplatformed. And, uh, and that's what uh, verse 6, yeah, that's what. So, so, Paul's, so basically the cessationist argument does not fit the context, number one. Number two, it doesn't. Uh, it doesn't uh, follow basic hermeneutical principles for interpretation. Uh, Tom Schreiner, who is otherwise a fantastic uh, exegete of scripture, in my opinion, um, he, he says that maybe Paul didn't even know that the spiritual gifts would cease because God had no reason to tell him. Well, if Paul didn't know that, then what you're, what you're telling me is that you're going to use Ephesians 2.20 as your hinge argument for cessationism, 
But Paul didn't know he was arguing for cessationism. You're actually putting that argument. So the the basic hermeneutical principle, the the grammatical historical principle, is we have to we have to ask ourselves the question: What was the author's intent? Well, Paul couldn't have intended to teach cessationism if he didn't believe in cessationism. If he if God had never told him the gifts would cease. Okay, and then finally in Ephesians chapter four, right? And then Ephesians four eleven to thirteen. Uh, it it says, uh, Paul suggests, I think strongly, that apostles will be around for a very long time. He says, God gave apostles, prophets, evangelists, shepherds, and teachers to equip the saints for the work of ministry, for the building up of the body of Christ, until we all attain to the unity in the faith and the knowledge of the Son of measure of the stature of the fullness of Christ. And so I would just ask you, has that happened yet? Has the church globally attained to the fullness of the measure of the stature uh, of of maturity of Christ has the church reached full maturity? It certain certainly hadn't in Paul's day when uh, in in John's day when he, the seven churches five of them are rebuked only two get by without a rebuke. So when did it, when in church history did the church attain that level of maturity? The point is apostles and prophets will be with us until the church attains that level of maturity, which I would say is at the parousia, the return of Jesus. So. All that back on Ephesians 2.20. Why would Paul in chapter 2 say, apostles and prophets, they're not going to be around very long. But then in chapter 4, they're going to be around until Christ returns. Is Paul contradicting himself? I'm going to go with the no. So uh, all that to say, I I think that cessationists are way missing it to use Ephesians 2.20 to suggest that prophecy was just a foundational thing in the the New Testament church. Yeah, and... and Josh Miller? Yeah, so you guys would agree that... um... What is scripture has been received by the church community? Like in the Old Testament, there wasn't a committee, there wasn't a group of apostles, there wasn't a group of anything in the Old Testament scriptures. It's kind of a mystery of how it all came about. A bunch of books were written, and then the community, as the body, it was just like, yes, that's God's word. They just received it. Like, why is Esther in there? I don't know. They just the whole Jewish community just said that's the word of God. So we believed it, right? And and why is, you know, why is why why are these books of Kings and Chronicles? Why are they in there? You know, we, we get the Torah, right? Moses writes the Torah, but like, why are why do we have some of these other books in here? And and we just go, well, God's people knew God's voice, right? It, my 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 sheep know my voice; they won't listen to another. And in the New Testament, it's kind of the same way. You know, the apostles are dead before the canon is put together, right? Like Paul didn't write, and these are the books of the New Testament that you should all receive. There was no uh, apostolic council; there were just books that circulated, and the church said this is the word of God. And they just received it and believed it as such. And there was consensus amongst the church that this is God's word. Even Irenaeus, when he's writing against uh, a man by the name of, oh, what's his name? Marcion. And Marcion saying, oh, well, we don't like these books and we don't like Paul. We don't like these Old Testament books. Uh, Irenaeus comes along and says, well, we believe in all the Old Testament scriptures that have been you know, canonized for us by the Jewish people. And these books, which happen to be the Protestant New Testament, you know, good for us. He says, these Hey-o. are, these are accepted in every church around the world. We all know these are God's word. And he doesn't add the shepherd of Hermas. He doesn't add these other extra literature pieces. He says, all of the churches know this is God's word. And this is like a hundred years. Um, oh, well, this is like, uh, what was it like 130 AD, which is like, uh, I'm trying to do math real quick. It's at least 30, uh, 47, 
60 years after the death of the apostles. I mean, within a hundred years of the death of the apostles. Uh, it's, it's recent. So math is hard. I apologize. Um, but all that to say, what is scripture is not prophecy or not prophecy. What is scripture is what is received by the community and is accepted as God's word because they realize that God was speaking through the author, whether it's Paul writing a letter or whether it's uh, John the Revelator, who's obviously writing a letter, but was writing a letter about a prophetic encounter in which he had. So um, anyway, all that to say, we agree on what scripture is. And in 1 Corinthians 14, we agree that the prophecy taking place in the New Testament church is not um, scripture level authority. And I think that the five reasons that I gave on it not being scripture level authority, Michael and Michael would agree with, right? Yeah. Like yeah. all of those areas we agree with. So, so ultimately what we're saying is scripture is inerrant. Scripture is infallible. It is determined to be scripture, not because it was written by an apostle, not because it's prophecy, but because the church has accepted it. And then finally, we would say that prophecy, as described in 1 Corinthians 14, doesn't have the same weight as scripture. And I think that you can hold any continuationist position that holds those things to be true, that scripture is inerrant and infallible, and that prophecy today doesn't have that same kind of authority. Now, if you're going to wiggle on Old Testament prophecy I, and New I Testament prophecy, yeah. different, as long as yeah, those things me... are the same, we're on the same team. Y'all both wanted to chime in there, so I'm going to... I'm gonna... Just yeah, go well, for I want to comment on the Ephesians two twenty bit. I think the problem that that Schreiner uh, is creating um, is one that's inconsistent. And you're right about that, Michael. But it's also failing to recognize the actual purposes clearly spelled out in Scripture for why prophecy at all. And those purposes don't seem to suddenly have been completely fulfilled because uh, when you look at um, the purpose of giving of the Spirit. Uh, that's fulfilled in, in uh, prophesied in Joel 2 and fulfilled in Acts 2 is that your sons and your daughters would prophesy. He's going to take that spirit and mark all of those who believe in Christ, all of those who are the people of God, and mark them with that same kind of spirit that existed in the Old Testament on the prophets. And so the purpose for the giving of the spirit or the purpose of giving prophecy in particular isn't so that a foundation can be laid. It seems to be so that the people of God would be marked by the spirit of God. And that means prophecy. And then the reasons given in, in uh, 1 Corinthians 14, 3 are pretty explicit. The prophecy is is literally intentioned for the edification of the body, for the encouragement of the body, and for the comfort of the body. So when did the body stop needing those things? Um, to my degree of knowledge, yeah. that's still needed just as much today as it was back then. Amen. And if it is an eschatological thing that the people of God are supposed to be marked by the Spirit of God, and the, and the evidence of that is probably prophecy according to Joel 2, then how is that not also for today? Aren't we still the people of God? Don't we also still need to be marked by the Spirit of God? Uh, and then what does it mean for the Spirit to be the deposit of our faith if it's not that? Um, it, it just it, it creates more problems than it solves. And I understand that the main intention is to protect the authority and the sufficiency of Scripture, but I think they're going to extremes and they're actually throwing away the things God intended for the church to protect the sufficiency and authority of Scripture. Yeah, yeah. And, and as a non sequitur, uh, right? Because we we would say we believe in those things as well, but we don't think that you have to destroy prophecy to do that. Absolutely. Mm -hmm. Yeah, we we love the authority of Scripture. 
We love sufficiency of scripture. And it's for those very reasons that we want to obey what the scripture says and eagerly desire spiritual gifts, especially the gift of prophecy. Couldn't agree with you more, Miller, uh, bringing in the Acts 2 connection, because there we actually have a, a time frame for how long should we expect prophecy to exist? Um, and it says in the last days, or, or at least what time period would she, should we expect this for, you know, 20, 30, 40 years? It says in the last days, I'll pour out my spirit on all flesh and your sons and daughters will prophesy. And actually mentions dreams and visions. So those who want to water down what prophecy is, and they say, well, prophecy is just testifying to Jesus. And we would agree that prophecy can mean that. But there he actually mentions dreams and visions. He's talking about revelations like what Paul has in Acts chapter 16 when he has a dream of a Macedonian saying, come over here and help me. Uh, it, it, it's talking about those kinds of revelations. And, and we should expect that for the last days not just like an early stage foundation. And what that does is it, is it helps us understand that Ephesians 2.20 was talking about a very specific kind of revelation, the revelation that Gentiles are included in the people of God. That's what the apostles and prophets were foundational for. But that... Uh, but revelation goes much broader than that. It goes into personal prophecies. It goes into prophecies that edify the church, First Corinthians 14, all the verses that you mentioned. And so to say that this specific singular revelation of Ephesians 2.20 and Revelation er, and uh, 3.5 speaks of every kind of prophecy everywhere is just taking it too far. Now, guys, here's where I want to, uh, I, I think there's one more question. We're going a little longer than we typically do, but it's just such a huge discussion is, uh, is whether prophecy can be binding on the conscience. Because what the cessationist is going to say uh, is, is that like, if you're saying prophecy can be binding on the conscience in the same way that scripture is binding on the conscience, then what you've done is you've challenged the authority and the sufficiency of scripture. Authority, because now I have to obey this prophet and the Bible. Okay, so uh, which one takes precedence? Sufficiency... Because the doctrine of sufficiency of Scripture says that the Scriptures give us everything we need for life and godliness. But now I need the Scripture and this person's prophetic word in order to, to perfectly obey God, in order to obey God. So both sufficiency and authority of Scripture are endangered if we say prophecy is binding on the conscience. So Josh and Miller, I'd like for you guys to weigh in on this. And I don't even think that we all agree precisely on how we would articulate this. Although the yeah. most important point we would agree on, um, which is that scripture trumps everything. And that actually safeguards it completely. But I do want to ask you guys the question, is prophecy binding on the conscience? And secondarily, is it binding on the conscience in the same way that the Bible is? So this is a really good question. So, um, let me answer it in two different ways. Okay, I I, uh, I was with uh, my buddy Matthew Tarpley, and we did this American Gospel video together. And he asked me, uh, you know, if I disobeyed Scripture. He asked me about it binding on my conscience, and I just asked him the same question. It's like, hey, you believe that God can do anything He wants, right? Like, you believe it's not a, the normative mode for God to speak or God to heal. You don't think it's normative, but that God could do it if He wanted to. He's like, yeah, absolutely. He's like, if God wanted to, He could have an angel manifest at the foot of your bed and tell you to do something very carefully. And, you know, you ask the, the angel, you're sitting there talking to him, and you're like, well, well, tell me a little bit about Jesus, angel. And you're like, you know, was Jesus the brother of Satan? And, and she goes, no, of course. Jesus, of course not. Jesus was the eternal son of God, uh, eternally begotten with the Father. And you ask the angel, well, angel, you know, did, did Jesus float out of heaven? And she goes, no, he was born of the Virgin Mary. 
you, you grill this angel on orthodoxy and then this angel tells you, okay, go and do this thing. As in Matthew, are you going to disobey that angel? Like, are you going to disobey something you know clearly is from God? And he has the same problem I do. I just think that it applies to prophecy. Now, the, the problem is, is that our measure of confidence has to weigh in to the way that we live our life. For example, I know that the scriptures, I know they are the word of God and they are binding on my conscience because I know that they're the word of God. They are God's word. Now, prophecy, I don't know if it's always God's word. And that requires discernment and discretion. 99.9% .9 of prophecy that I'm aware of has been, that I've experienced, has been the kind of stuff that I shared from this Sunday where I go, hey, do you have, uh, you know, an infirmity, like a, uh, a chronic illness? Oh, I have, you know, an autoimmune disorder. Great, let's pray. That's the kind of prophecy I'm used to. I don't know that I've ever received or given a, thus saith the Lord, you should go to this school. Um, I did give a word to a guy when we were in Louisiana where I asked him, I said, uh, I feel like the Lord is saying that you need to go back to school and finish like seminary or something like that. And his wife had a great job and he felt guilty about going to school while she worked and it applied to him. So, um, but again, um, I think that guy should test that word, pray about that word and have some measure of certainty about that word. I still think that even me giving a word that bears witness to him is still not equal to scripture. But I do think if you have received a great deal of clarity in a word, that the, the, the measure of confidence that this is God weighs into your obedience to God. We should not disobey God, right? Um, but again, if an angel showed up to Matthew Tarpley and he grilled him on his orthodoxy, and then that angel said, um, this is now the word of the Lord for all people, right? This new book of the Bible. And on Tuesdays, everyone should wear blue shirts and your children uh, should all wear sandals and they're not allowed to wear shoes. And they started just writing a bunch of new laws. Um, I would say, no, we're not going to accept that as scripture. So um, just like uh, the, uh, Wayne Grudem says in 1 Corinthians 14, 36, that this is an example that the apostles are not to give instruction of worship or practice in worship. I don't think prophetic words are supposed to be binding on the conscience of all people everywhere, though they can be instructive to an individual. And I don't think that word to the individual should have the same weight of scripture unless they have some kind of ugly amount of revelation, like Jesus coming down from heaven level revelation. Um, but they shouldn't disobey God if they know it's God. <laughs> That's kind of a conflated issue. I apologize that I took so long answering it. Dude, you did great. You did great. Miller, I want to hear what you <laughs> I say. Think it's, yeah. uh, I'll keep mine really simple. I think the degree, uh, the intensity of the revelation will determine often the confidence that you can have that it's God or not God. And that level of confidence is also going to determine uh, how, how disobedient or obedient you're going to be <clears throat> to what you've heard. Um, I, I think, you know, Peter getting a trance is probably a bit more explicit than a vision. And the same thing would be true for us. Um, if God speaks to me audibly, uh, you know, Hey, go and buy this field. <laughs> I'm going to go do it. <laughs> yeah, um, that's good. And, and, and I, I would find that binding. Peter knew it was the Lord because one, an angel had appeared to um, their master. They had come yeah, to him, which is the second sign. He had this trance three times in a row where the Lord told him to get up and eat. There was a great measure of assurance that Peter had to live out that word, right? Even Gideon yeah, so was the, like, the intensity is what I said. 
Yeah. The intensity of the experience will often determine your confidence. It'll also give you the faith you need to do whatever might be difficult to do. Amen. So uh, again, the degree of confidence we have that it is God is the degree to which we should probably obey what we feel like God is telling us. Agreed. And right. And and I I like what uh what Josh said about like if you were able to grill the angel and make sure it was theologically like accurate on all points. <laughs> Did he come I mean, in the flesh? Would such, that would be such a strange conversation. Hold on. What's the Nicene Creed? Can you say it wholeheartedly? You know. Gideon, um, uh, uh, Gabriel goes, Dummy, I stand before the presence of the Lord. Like, hold out hold on, hold on. Do you agree with the church councils? <laughs> <laughs> All the way up to the fifth oh, ecumenical. But, <laughs> but it yeah. is so true because Second Corinthians, el- <laughs> yeah, Second Corinthians 11, an angel could appear and, uh, you know, an angel of light could appear and preach a, or a Galatians 1 where he says, if I or an angel appears and preaches a different gospel, let him be a curse. So, uh, so I, I think that's a real thing. And, but I think what it shows, Josh, is that our perspective is, the scripture always trumps. The scripture always trumps. The scripture always trumps. Regardless of how you parse Deuteronomy 18 and there are continuations on multiple sides, uh, we, we want to present a few different ways of handling this. But if you come to it that the scripture always trumps, then the authority of scripture isn't challenged. The sufficiency of scripture isn't challenged. And, and, uh, and what I would say is when we talk about binding on the conscience, I'll tell you what's binding on the conscience. 1 Corinthians 14, 1, eagerly desire spiritual gifts, especially that you may prophesy. That's binding on the conscience, and that's really quite clear. It's really clear. And so if you're going to disobey that and then challenge me on sufficiency and authority of Scripture, I'm going to be like, uh, let's read our Bibles, because I think that's pretty clear. I also love the principle of the greater the clarity, the greater the accountability. The scriptures, scriptures are clear. The perspicuity of Scripture, we already talked about that. I will agree, and and Josh, I'm kind of surprised. I, so we actually do agree on this: the binding on the on the conscience. It's just the greater degree of clarity, the greater the level of accountability. But even if it's the audible voice of God, it's still not as clear as the scriptures, because the scriptures are right here to me audibly, and I thought it was God. So, um, but I, I'll tell you in. Um, uh, when I moved to Oklahoma, God spoke to me so repeatedly and so clearly in such a variety of contexts, in such a variety of manners, I I felt like if I did not obey that revelation, I I felt like I would have been in disobedience to God. Uh, now, that doesn't mean that it wasn't like I'm filled with joy to be here and all the things. Uh, I, I'm simply saying it was so crystal clear. I think I would have been held accountable if I didn't do what the Lord told me. The greater the clarity, the greater the accountability. And I think the last thing that I would say is that uh, prophecies are contextual, but Scripture is trans-contextual. Uh, contextual. By trans-contextual, what I mean is it applies across every context, everywhere, uh, so if I have a prophecy for Josh personally, there's no way I can say that's binding on the conscience for every Christian everywhere. Uh, but any passage that I read in scripture is binding on the conscience of every Christian everywhere. So that's the difference. That's how we uphold the authority and the sufficiency of scripture. Um, we, we hold it in the highest esteem, and it's actually for that very reason that we pursue prophecy. Okay, that probably wraps it up for my closing thoughts. Josh Miller, do you guys have any closing thoughts for this episode? <laughs> Miller had to leave. He's like, it's one twenty-six, and I've got to go tie my shoes over there. 
So he hung up and went to go tie his shoes. Um, uh, you know, I think I've already given my closing thoughts. When it comes down to um, the things, the areas that we agree on, the things that we have to keep in tension is Scripture is our authority. Scripture is infallible. It has been accepted by all of the church universal. So we know that these are the words of God. Okay. And then secondly, we believe according to 1 Corinthians 14, there are five reasons that hold modern day prophecy of a different authority than the scriptures themselves. The scriptures are uh, authoritative and binding on the conscience, all people everywhere, infallible, prophecy, there's room for error. And I think that when we have those two things um, um, contextualized, uh, that that helps us live out our life. And, And for the person that's out there going, oh, you know, I received something from the Lord and I'm not sure if it's the Lord or not. And, I, and I'm like worried that I'm sinning because I'm not obeying what God is telling me to do. And, and I walked by a person in the grocery store and as I looked out of the corner of my eye, I saw them and, you know, they, I thought maybe they were sick, but I didn't want to go out and speak to them. I felt scared, but I felt like the Lord was telling me to do this and I didn't do it. So I'm in sin and you're constantly living in sin because you didn't do this random thought that floated into your head. Please, please, please hear me. That is not what we're talking about when we say that prophecy might be able to bind on your conscience. I am talking about a stupid, ridiculous amount of clearly this is God. Thus, if, if God woke you up in the middle of the night shaking you and said, hey, there's a person in a wheelchair at Kroger you've got to pray for at three o'clock and you didn't do that, sure, we can call that sin. But it's just a kind of inkling in your spirit that you kind of, right. oh, I don't know if that's God. Not the same thing. But, so please, yeah, please hear but- us. Even then, even then, while it, I think it would be categorized as sin, it wouldn't be as great of a sin as, uh, I don't know, cursing out your neighbor and punching him in the face because the scripture clearly says not to do that kind of thing, right? Like, sure. So yeah. the scripture is still clearer than even the clearest of prophetic revelation. And that's why the scripture is our utmost authority. Yeah, I so, want to make guys, sure all, all yeah. those things are super clear. Yeah. Okay. Well, that's that's it for the show today. Uh, 128. Great programs next week. We've got a show on uh, prayer. 128. Prayer. It's 528, bro. Uh, I don't know what you're, what how many, you're how, many, how long we've been recording. Sorry. Uh, an hour and 28 minutes in. Um, so yeah, we've got a great show uh, on Monday where we're going to be talking about prayer and how it's been kind of like scientifically examined. Do people who pray get their, their prayers answered more than people who don't? The desires of their heart. Does prayer do anything? Well, we've got someone coming on to talk about that. That's going to be exciting. We also have Randy Clark on Tuesday, and then the boys are going to be back to talk about the gifts of the Spirit. I obviously have a phone call coming in, so I'm going to let everybody go. Uh, Make sure to donate there on PayPal uh, or Patreon to support the ministry if you've been blessed by it. Uh, Usually things are on Do Not Disturb, but, you know, it's at the end of the program. Want to thank Kairos Classrooms for sponsoring this episode of Remnant Radio. And if you're out there, you've ever wondered, hey, I wonder if learning a biblical language would be a supplemental tool for me to help me in my biblical studies. Well, you need to check out Kairos Classrooms. They offer Greek and Hebrew classes that can help teach you and train you. It's a live classroom environment with actual students and actual live teachers, and they help teach you the biblical languages of Greek in Hebrew. And you need to check out Kairos Classrooms today. There's a link in the description, and you can use the promo code REMNANT to get 10% off. These classes are already crazy affordable, but with the promo code REMNANT, R-E-M-N-A-N-T, you'll get 10% off of Kairos Classrooms. So check that out today. And thank you so much for Kairos for sponsoring this episode of REMNANT Radio.